the world of Axiom Verge twists and turns. Rather than running straight through its run-and-gun challenges, you have to navigate a complicated network of hallways. What does this add to the game? Tonight, on the Commune Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Commune Podcast. This time, we will be talking about map design in Axiom Verge. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask, Adrian, how have you been doing? I've been doing pretty good. Finals are next week, so, you know, finally, this torture will end. (laughs) Torture? Jeez. You really don't like school, huh? No, I'm taking chemistry and advanced Java and physics too. So, yeah, not a bunch, not a good set of classes to be taking all at once. But they're the only ones I have left, so I have no choice, unless I want to wait another semester, which I don't want to do. Uh, Nick, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Today was a big mess, though. Oh, big mess. Didn't, didn't sleep last night. I worked from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. Went home and slept for like five hours, and here I am. Boy, that does sound like a mess. Can you name your favorite action-adventure game? That's a hard question, but I would say that one of my favorite action-adventure games would have to be the um, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, partially for its writing and partially for its entire design. Its atmosphere mm-hmm. really tells its story quite well, or sets the mood and prepares for a story and lots of hidden details that I think really help say nice, clear tone. Okay. So it's got a lot of nice aesthetic touches. How would you describe its level design? Its level design can be clear in most areas, but it's mostly based around new items that you get. It's one big fly that I see that happens in most other Zelda games, but yeah, while they do try to mix in new things, it's usually just based around with certain item that you get. So it depends on how much you actually enjoy using that item. Mm. Luckily, the developers of most Zelda games know how to work it. Yeah, it's a formula they had a lot of experience with. So the level design is largely dictated by what your items can do, and the game design will try to draw out the properties of whatever item you're using. Exactly. The level design can be very good or bad, depending on the item. An example of a good item was in the first Legend of Zelda game I played was Oracle of Ages. There's an item that that requires you to, um, sw- when you swing the rod, it places a block and you can push it around. It actually made certain puzzles really good. And you really can, like, get to step for a moment and think, okay, what can I not do? An example of a bad one would be Skyward Sword, there's this little bug that you can hold on your arm and it shoots out and you control it by turning the controller. This can lead to the level being way too big and you have to look around very carefully just to get through a door. To look for a crystal or a switch. I really didn't feel like I was advancing. I felt like it wasn't so much as a puzzle or a finding game as I had to stop and say, okay, where's the thing that's, that's stopping me from going forward? Hmm. That's a that's a subtle point, but I think I see it. I I don't know. I'm not following. It, it, to me, like the the observation he's making is mostly neutral, but um, it's one that I say like, yeah, that's kind of the design of the game. Finding things has always been part of you know Zelda's design. Although, it, yeah, it can depend on whether or not you find that in your cup of tea, whether it's finding keys hidden underneath pots or hidden in grass or things like that. It's the same thing with those switches where finding the switches or no, or picking up on details like this room is suspiciously empty and I'm blocked off. Maybe I should look around for things. See, I would normally agree, but the uh, the place where the beetle is used is a dungeon, which in almost all Zelda games is notorious as a labyrinth for you to get through. It's not as much about the exploring there as it is trying to fight your way through or find your way through. And I felt like 
that was not a good place for the beetle to be introduced. See, this is where I'm kind of like not with you anymore because I do distinctly remember playing the demo where they show off the beetle and they give you a lot of places to use it like right from the get-go because you're in this big like circular dome-shaped room with a bunch of caves that are easy to spot and that draw your attention to them because they have rupees around them and they have crates hanging on strings in the air so naturally you can be drawn to flying in the air. In fact, you need to fly that thing into the air in order to get yourself out of that room once you unlock it. So, yeah. Okay. And Adrian, do you have a favorite Metroid-style game? I know I feel like I've been asked this before, but for me it's actually a toss-up between uh, Super <laughs> you and were, You were actually asked... You were asked this before some weeks ago. Was it during the interview? It was during the first Axiom Verge podcast. Oh, Jesus. Okay, so I got... Yeah. And I think I said the same thing. It was a toss-up between Metroid Fusion and Super Metroid. So how would you describe the level design in Super Metroid? For me, it's actually just easier to highlight the differences between... Because I know a Fusion is actually the one that locks you off more. Or... That has more, like, locks that aren't actually based on the power-ups. Because they're just, like, level 1, level 2, level 3 door locks that you just have to get the item that unlocks them. Or get the code or whatever it was that actually unlocks them. So I know Fusion is actually a little bit more restricted in that sense. Although that still didn't stop me getting lost and or even getting outright stuck. Yeah. So it's actually interesting the way Fusion does that. It also lets it set up neat set piece moments with the SAX. In Metroid Fusion, there's a lot more hard locks that you simply can't get past no matter what, and that allows them to do more set piece kind of things like where SAX comes in because you're mm-hmm. you're more tightly guided. But that also means that they don't have enough abilities to cover every one of the locks, so sometimes a lock is just an arbitrary now you can open this color door kind of lock. Yeah, and I'm fine with that. To, to me, I don't I don't latch onto weird expectations. Like every lock needs to have a power up or or an ability. That's not a weird expectation. I think it is. It's one that's easy to latch to and not get over. But to me, like to me, that's no different than getting bent out of shape because you have to open a door by scanning a bunch of things in Metroid Prime because it's not a, you know a real power up. Or because you have to use, you know, the thermal visor. It's like, I don't know. I I don't get nitpicky about it is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I personally enjoy Fusion. Yeah, to me, the locks are still doing the same things. Whether it's with a power-up or it's still putting you through these maze-like areas that you're still going to have to sort your way through. Without the unabashed locks, though, there's a certain uh, simplicity and clarity to the locks if you only have you know one lock per ability and once you're introducing locks just for the sake of locks those are additional complexities you're adding into the game yeah it's like if i was thinking oh zelda they shouldn't use keys for doors it's like that kind of weird idea it's like no they still manage to set up the dungeon structure even if it's just key doors the thing about the zelda comparison is that zelda has always been about picking up keys, whereas you know, the first Metroid has very few varieties of locks. Right. I get what you mean. But it's not an idea that I'm, that I'm not open to. I gotcha. You won't reject it as like some awful thing. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, as I said with Fusion, they still manage to make the Metroid structure, and that's because what the locks are isn't as important. It's just the way they're structured. I guess that's fair. They had some pretty yeah. kick-ass bosses, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely the, the best thing. It also had more bosses than Super Metroid. I think Super had about four, maybe five bosses. I remember Fusion having more, and they were cool, too. Oh, yeah, and the whole thing with the Parasite, or Parasite? Was it Parasite X? Yeah, I think it was Parasite X was also super cool in the way that worked.
When I read discussions online about an adventure platformer or a so-called Metroidvania, oftentimes I see mentions of the gameplay abilities it offers, or the design of its puzzles, or how much the player can break from its dictated sequence. Here, however, we have a discussion on map design. First up, we talk about those elements which give the player's path order and structure. Nick, could you tell us what elements give a sense of structure or pacing to the map? One of the things that helped me feel like there was a pace going or helped me could tell my progress is the actual save rooms. Oh. I could always tell when a boss was about to come up because I would see, oh, there's two paths. This one's a save room. Good. Right. But I could also see that the actual different changes of the actual sections of the map along with different music different colors on the map itself for the area really gave me a sense of, oh, wow, I'm stepping somewhere new. But that's pretty basic. That's true. Yeah, you did make a good point there. Those were things I would have pointed out if you didn't say them. The save room, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that first because I, that's probably the very first thing that sets the pacing of the game in that I, I know there is a quick save, but... By and large, the save rooms determine when you can turn off the console, and the save rooms determine where you reset to if you get killed. So the save rooms outline your gameplay sessions in that way. Adrian, anything you would like to add? You're right that the save, the save rooms do, I don't want to say dictate, but they do influence you know how you play the game. Because right. not only is it are they where you can you know stop and call it a night, but there are also where you can heal. So if you're going through an area, you're definitely going to want to be on the lookout on those, especially if you take too much hits along the way. Was there anything you wanted to add about elements that give a sense of pacing and structure to the game? Right, the different colored rooms was definitely one, but I also think the power ups also give a sense of pacing, just how quickly or not quickly you can get the power ups at least the ones on the critical path anyways, those also set the pacing. Right, because your moveset is constantly changing. It gives you a sense of progress. Yeah. Actually, one thing I forgot to comment on was, um, Nick, you mentioned that bosses come up, and by and large, there's one boss per area. So bosses are another element that give you some kind of idea of the size of the world because there is one in each segment of the map. There's one in most segments of the map. Yeah, I was about to say, that's not entirely true. Yeah. There's actually two in one area. <laughs> There's three. Well, two mandatory ones. Oh, yeah, 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 the last section. But it's the last part of the game, so it makes more sense. Right. So, Nick, how would you say that the save rooms influence level design? I would say that they prepare you and they could actually tell you, okay, what, they should tell you what's coming up, sort of. But they also help you get a more sense of, okay, now that I can say, go back to here anytime I die, I can explore there and don't have to worry about losing all my progress. That's true. Yeah, that is a good point. Or if you're a speedrunner, you can <laughs> quit out of the game and save yourself a, a huge trek back through three areas of the game. Oh, yeah. And do you feel like the graphics influence the level design at all? Yes, definitely. So there are some rooms that are not exactly necessary to look in certain ways. Because of the design, it really makes it clear that they are using the graphics parts for it. Okay, that didn't make any sense. But a good example is before this one boss, there's like goat head technology hanging in the background. We actually changed that one room around it. And I thought well, it was very clear that they were trying to... That the room was not really much more of a transition. Nothing but a transition between save room, where you entered, and the boss room. So, the actual design of it is based more around the, the actual background and art. I could provide a picture right now if you want. Yeah. Yeah, that would help. Alright. Here. If you look at the picture, you can very clearly see that this room is a transitional room, but they're using the art to at least make it interesting. And they're changing the level to look around it. Yeah, 
Those uh, red doors also are a good cue for letting you know you're about to go to a boss door. Yeah, not only that, so that it actually having that room to the left being the save room every time always it's a very clear what's coming up. Yeah, you, you, if you go to the save room, you don't have to make a huge trek back to the boss should you die. So your point here is that this room is pretty shamelessly utilitarian. It's just there to get you between the save point and the boss. And because you want easy access to the boss, you can't have too much going on here, but you still got to have a connecting room. So they take a room that seems otherwise empty and pointless, and they've matched it with these pretty graphics that might overcomplicate a room that has another purpose, but can be meditative and reflective in a room that otherwise has nothing going on. I would say something like that, but I would say that this room didn't need to look this exciting or look this way. It's very clear that what's going to be exciting is on the other side of that red tube. This whole room here is set up, like the level, the actual like stage area of it, where you can go, it's not important to this room, and the makers of the game could very clearly knew this, because look at that huge area, you, couldn't, you can't really jump up to up there. There's nothing up there. Yeah, could have just been a low ceiling, right? Exactly. This is a level design that didn't really matter very much, but it's very clear that they wanted it to have a certain tone, and I thought that that was a very good decision. Yeah. You seem to be picking up on that kind of stuff, like when you mention the mood setting in Majora's Mask. You have an appreciation for those details which are unnecessary, but still impact the experience. I would have to say that the way a game presents itself is much more important than some people can look can see. Like, when I was playing Uncharted, which I know this doesn't seem related, but it was very clear to me that the levels were thought up before the story, because there's no reason the game should have a train falling off a mountain, a train chase, and all this other weird stuff so suddenly. Of course, it was kind of obvious that they thought of the levels, they thought of the levels before they thought of the story, but I could at least appreciate the work they put into it. Tone can really change the experience of anything. So what you're mentioning with Uncharted there is that there seemed to be a disconnect between the story and the gameplay? Let's say that the gameplay is more centered around exciting, huge areas or a big action setting that's supposed to be more amazing and theatrical. But they think about that much faster than they think about the story. So sometimes the points don't come very clear. Mm. The follow uh, Uncharted 4, I think it was, is whichever one that had them looking for a city, I can't remember what it was. No, that's like three of them, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> there was one of the Uncharted games that had a part where you just went through this giant sh- just giant shipyard. It's like a graveyard for ships and how it's designed. Then you get into a giant ship, it blows up, and you have to fl- if you have to climb through as it's turning upside down or half like one end's going upside down. There's running yeah, from that's water. That's Uncharted Three. Yeah, that's Uncharted that was, Three, hands down. Yeah, Uncharted Three's whole design there it was very clear. It was a little comically unrealistic in some ways. I mean, I, I know thought it's, that thing was cool. I thought it was cool too. <laughs> Comically unrealistic things are cool. Let's just get that out of the way. You mean like when Batman hit Superman in the head with like a sink? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't like that movie at all, but you gotta admit that's pretty good. (laughs) But tone really matters, and most people Hmm. like don't care. And if you want a good example of how tone can change something entirely, look at Yumi Nikki and how. Dot flow are basically the same playing games, but the art design and the actual different colors and textures used really change how it feels. Hmm. Things like art design and color absolutely influencing tone. But um, I guess the one thing about Uncharted is uh, I'm not sure where what was your problem with tone there. I didn't. I guess it was not tone so much as its presentation. It felt. A little obvious that it wasn't trying to think of the story as quickly as the action set pieces. And I could very clearly tell this was thought up first. 
because how weird and how so different the settings could be in some points. I didn't have a problem with it, because I could tell that they did it right. I just felt like it was a little obvious at first, and it kind of threw me off a little, but I would recommend the games definitely. Right. Axiom Verge has a very close link between tone and level design, and you can see it here in just this piddly old hub room that serves no other purpose than to shuttle you between a save point and a boss, but it still looks cool. Exactly. They try to put in a little bit of tone there, and I think that its design really just works there. Okay. I would probably just throw in that I think rooms like those actually do serve a functional purpose, just for the map being not too compressed, because obviously the save room and the boss room are going to be literally next to each other. So just having a small bit of space just to connect them to, like that's a functional reason. A connector room is a functional thing to have. So I would still say that just because there's nothing in it, it's like it's still doing something. I do. I, I didn't mean to imply that it was useless. Oh, I did. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that the rooms are useless. It's one of those rooms that has to be put in a game, but they're usually not very exciting, or they're just there. Like the area before a boss sometimes can be just quiet or boring, or not that so those two go hand in hand. But some of them do not really say anything. And I really think that those are the type of rooms that need to be in some games. I guess the concept uh, I would like to use that's in art is negative space. You don't always want to fill everything on your canvas. Very so good sometimes to uh, help reduce clutter or as a sake of pacing, as we brought up earlier, this s- small connector room uh, is what that would be for. It's the uh, Where's Waldo theorem. <laughs> so... Adrian, how would you say that items influence level design? The item progression in Axiom Verge is actually very... How should I put it? It's not at all evenly paced. Not by areas, anyways. Because I know for, I think, the teleporter or the address disruptor... No, I think it's the, the drone, actually. You go through two whole areas, and you don't get anything in them. In fact, one area, which is the purple one, which is Eden... Absu. That's the bottom left one. Okay, so the thing about Absu, actually this applies to Absu and Z, is that you go through both of those whole areas, and I think you actually don't even need to... You return to Z, but I don't think you ever have to return to Absu. That is, if you're not going for the other items. I don't remember everything you pick up in Absu, but you at least need to go there for the electrocutor gun. Oh yeah, that's, that's right. So yeah, you have to meet Elsinova and get the electrocutor gun, and I think that's about it. That is about it for that area. You're shuttled off to Z after that. Yeah. But then you run right through Z, and, and that's what you're talking about, that the pacing of item pickup is not even across the maps. Yeah, I, it's not at all. I noticed that too. At first I was incredibly amazed by the amount of guns, but I couldn't find many of them. I was looking over at the bosses, and I found somebody had this weird fire-spitting gun that I've yeah. never seen before. Fire-spitting gun? Like, it shoots a fire that falls down on the floor, and it shoots a flame pillar up. The crucial items you kind of found regularly, but the different guns, there were a ton of them, and there were a lot of them that you missed? I really felt that I could not find what I was looking for within the... Game, within, within, I was looking for guns. I, uh, there's a point in which with the, my item pickups stagnated, and I was like, oh, like originally I was like, oh sweet, I have these weird tentacles on my arm, my back that shoot <laughs> out. They look like weird snake heads, and they keep killing things. It's cool. Then later, it's like, okay, now you have 0.1% faster shooting or something. Like, oh, thanks. I couldn't find any more guns after that at some point. I ended up not not competing the game because I couldn't actually find my way through it. I see. The level design really got with me because there's some point where I could not advance. Hmm. And I can't even tell you where I need to go to advance. Okay. The items with the power-ups and the way they're paced isn't evenly crossed. 
crispy areas. As we mentioned, once you get the electrocutor, you sort of breeze through Absu and Z, and then move on to Kerr to get the next main item. Right. So if you're like me, where you take up time off to explore, most of that area is going to be in Absu and Z, especially because they're both some of the most complicated areas in the game, and probably the easiest to get lost in. Mm. That's and and this is here's the other thing. When we saw the speed run, we noticed that you can actually go trek through those areas pretty quickly. But you know, in a, in a blind playthrough, you're bound to check out all of those doors, which is why I bring up the getting lost part because you're going to get sidetracked going off into the, all the other optional areas before you stumble upon the main one. So, because in that second fifth of the game or so, where you're going through the the lowest areas, Absu and Z. Mm-hmm. Because in those areas you're encountering so few items that open up locks, a lot of the space you can explore is optional, and you know a good portion of it is going to be stuff you can't even access until later in the game. Like you might need the address bomb or something, and so yeah, that leads to a level design where it's very open for exploration, but it's also very open for getting lost. Yeah, and I find that when mo- most of my secret hunting, when I go back after I get a new power-up, it took me to those two areas the most, and a, a little bit of Eribu as well. Whereas I actually find Kerr, one of the simpler areas, and same thing with the area that's connected. Eruma is like barely an area, because that's actually mostly a straight path. So that's another really interesting thing about the way the map is set up, in that if you know where to go, the two most complicated areas are actually ones that you can go through fairly quickly. And it's one of the reasons why items can feel oddly placed, because you can be in those two areas for a long time before you ever get your next item. But in actuality, you can actually cut clean through them after the electrocutor and then get your the drone fairly quickly. So, it's interesting how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. The other major part where you're probably bound to get lost is actually the largest tra- backtrack you need to do in order to get to Ukina, which is after you find Address Disruptor number two. And I feel like that's also the thing that's probably going to get the people most lost because that happens very big in the very early on in the game that you can encounter that lock. And also very you know, easy to forget because you're going to go through a lot of the game, a lot of other rooms. And yeah, if people ever got stuck, I imagine finding that one room would probably be the one that took them a while. But it's just a matter of finding it. I, I, isn't Ukina the room, the place where you where you get hallucinations? Yes. Yes. Ironically, the point in which I stopped is directly after I beat that area. Oh. oh, in Eden? I couldn't find how to get through Eden. I just got... No, I just couldn't find a way in. I think another interesting thing about that speedrun is he did not need the Azure Disruptor, and that's because it only blocks one major lock, which is the one he can uh, sort of glitch through. But not sort of, like he uses the glitch mechanic. The explicit <laughs> yeah. glitch mechanic. Yeah, but uh, you think he might have given that a little bit better if he wanted you to use the address ball instead of just rub your face into it and then teleport right through it. I think it could have been a little better. <laughs> Better signaled that you can actually you can actually go through it. It doesn't look too box thick. Yeah, I don't know. Also, that leap from Kerr to uh, Ukina got me stuck as well because you have to travel pretty far back to get there. It's all the way back in the first area after going like four areas deep into the game. It's typically whenever the game needs you to go back to areas you've been to but you haven't been in a while, that those are going to be the ones that are likely to get you uh, wandering around for a bit, wondering where do I go again? Because you can't remember the spot that you need something for. Whereas in the early game, it's usually you know one one area at a time. You go through Erebu, then you go through Absu, then you go through Z, then you go to Kerr. And then after that, that's when the more complicated half of finding where to go happens. Well, when you go to Ukina to Eden, that's actually a lot simpler. Yeah, that's like just next door. Yeah. <laughs> when we talked with Thomas Happ, he said the general guideline, not 
a hard and fast rule, but a general guideline he went by was that as you got farther into the game, generally speaking, you would have to backtrack farther and farther from the point you were currently. So, you know, you might have to backtrack only a room at the very beginning of the game, and by the midpoint of the game, you might have to backtrack a couple areas. That's interesting. It very clearly says if you step ten rooms away, you're going to have to walk ten rooms back to get to where you were. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain clarity to that, but there's also a certain... um, Obviousness to it. Like, it's kind of very known, but you have to really develop the levels around it. Most people do. Some people do not. The only thing I might throw in is I don't actually remember Super Metroid quite being like that. Not Super, no. Uh, Super Metroid and, and Metroid Prime are more of the type that drop you off pretty much where you need to be every step of the way, but um, it's also easy to step out of that that core path. Yeah, definitely. And in some ways, that long trek you need to make in order to get back to Curve to make your way into Ukana uh, is what's going to set you up set you up for finding a lot of those items you may have missed along the way, which is actually exactly what happened to me once I got the drone. So, yeah. Same thing when you go back through, back to, when you have to return to Curve for the second time. Right. When you're not sure exactly where to go, you end up just checking every lock that is now available to you, and going back through those first three areas, you'll find a lot that you can do that you couldn't before. Especially because um, that ledge in, I believe it's in Absu, there's a ledge you can't get past until you have... Oh yeah, um, that thing was bugging me for a long time. Right. <laughs> until you get the grappling hook. How did the speedrunner get past? Oh, you know what? He didn't... Holy shit, that's why the speedrunner reset the game, because you can't get past that without the grapple beam unless you go back to the save point. Right, because you need to be an Erebu to get to Ukana. Yeah, so he went through three whole areas and then quit the game so that he was right there when he needed to be. So you do need the grapple beam if you're if you're saving every step of the way. You hmm. There's no other way to get through that area, Wait. is there over that ledge? Oh right, right, right. There's a ledge. Yeah, the there's a ledge in Absu. Not Erebu, yeah. it's in Absu. I know the one you're talking about. Right. That blue mechanical-looking area. Yeah, no, you're right. If it wasn't for that <laughs> trick, you otherwise actually wouldn't need that crap. Unless you can do the teleporter room, I don't think you can. No, wait, the fast travel? No, I think the fast travel actually does work, so you could actually still get back there. You need the, um... You can jump high enough to get to there? You you do need the grapple in order to get to Indy, which is the fast travel area. Right. So, right, you, you can... So you still need the grapple. Well, but wait, you still need the grapple, yeah. So yeah, the yeah. only reason he was able to skip the grapple was because he did, did he used that save exploit. Okay. Sounds like quite an exploit. discussing more concrete elements, such as upgrades and bosses, we're moving on to map design in a more abstract sense. We've mentioned the elements that give paths structure, but what is that structure? How can we talk about the path in and of itself? So next, I wanted to focus on individual areas, one by one. And Nick, could you tell us about Ukina? Yes. I would say it's unique in that it's different when you go through it the first time, like when you go through it the first time and when you exit it. You go through it the first time with your character hallucinating, hallucinating, and so some areas may seem odd or you actually see what looks like yourself when you, as you go through the level. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as you go through, the actual place turns more 
hellish and more nightmarish as you get through mm. trying to figure out not only what it what he is, but what the whole what's going on here. It's a very review. There's also very plot important to this area, and I'm not going to entirely spoil why. But I would say that one of the interesting things is that this area starts to have a sort of wavy effect the first time you go through it. Yeah, I know it's cheap to point out relations between Metroid and Axiom Verge, but the fact that you have a wavy graphical effect and the fact that you're constantly losing health is reminiscent of of Norfair and Super Metroid, where you have to go through the super hot areas and you don't have the Varia suit yet. I didn't actually replace the Metroids, but I actually did feel like the areas were more hot than the previous areas, as you'd start flashing red, and it kind of felt like it was... The the wavy effect kind of reminded me of, like, I don't know, a sauna effect? Like how it's hot? Yeah. The, but as I noticed that the the white background, the, what was normally the white and black background was turning black and red, like flashing. Not only that, the enemies were pretty aggressive there. So what's it like after, when you return? Returning was not nearly as creepier or hellish. It felt more relaxed. Like maybe what you had experienced was just all in your mind. The area up top of that, after you go through it, you actually, it's mostly blues and colors along lines of blue and turquoise. It's pretty soothing, right? Yeah. I thought that the purple and light blue background, like of stars and such, was actually pretty calming. It was maybe the exact opposite of what what, what the the hellish place was like. Yeah. Are you able to speak to its sense of direction? Its sense of direction is that it constantly has you going forward and, and going up. It feels like a climb, but you're chasing the hallucination. There's actually a point in it in which a face on the wall actually says something to Trace, and Trace says, I'm hallucinating, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> that was a strangely self-aware moment for Trace, but I get the feeling he has a lot of those based on the kind of game this is. I felt that it was a yeah. moment that really made sense, because... At that point, the horror felt like it was really trying to amp up a bit more. Is there an actual face on the wall talking to you? Yeah. It is a little strange that Axiom Verge calls upon these kind of Giger-esque aesthetics, but then they're kind of friendly and kind of goofy when you talk to them, and there's not much in the game that's scary until that part. I'm glad that Trace is actually very smart. Because the way he said that it was a hallucination made sense for someone as smart as him. He picked up before I did that it, that it was just a hallucination in his mind. He says, oh, sorry, are you Ophelia? To the face in the wall. Vey says, there's no such thing as Ophelia. He says, if there isn't, how did you even know what I was talking about? And, of course, the face says, you know the answer to that. And he says, because you're a hallucination. I thought it was a very good moment that showed just how smart he is and how he was able to look at it very clearly despite his predicament. It made sense character-wise. So you've got this pretty linear, pretty tense climb, and that's matched by like scary aesthetics and graphics and kind of a warped, weird story event. I, would, I thought it was also noteworthy that some of the hazards did not have a real counterpart. Like, there were faces sticking out of the wall that would they'd shoot lasers out of their mouth, but there was nothing like that If you go th when you go through it the second time. Right. Yeah, that was just weird. I thought that was a nice touch. It might meant that the actual thing was hurting him. It's hard to say, though, but I thought it was actually very creepy going through it the, my first time. Okay. And... The challenges also change when you backtrack through it, right? Oh, yeah. I would say that some areas stay really hard, but it was really good to be able to go through with your new power-ups and mow down the first enemies from the first room. <laughs> I, when I went through Ukana, there was a point when I was... There were multiple points where I was like, okay, how do I approach this enemy? Or 
there was actually a room in which these weird white bird-like things were flying back and forth. And I noticed that I couldn't use the address destructor on them, really, and that they just kept coming. That was weird, but it was new, and it was a big surprise. Or when I was going through, there's this weird white-robed thing. And it came. Th when I went near it, it put its cloak around me, and I died suddenly. Then I was low on health, but... Ugh, I don't remember that. That sounds creepy. Yeah, I thought that the I enemies of Ubinaw were pretty... It was a pretty good tone that it set, but it was really eerie. Yeah, those ghost things are actually... That's the only area they appear, I think, in the whole game. Makes sense. Kind of fits with the whole creepy thing of faces on the wall and arms popping out of the edge corners and... Yeah. I really like the massive amount of enemies that they're new because it really helped prepare... Like, that was a good tension builder. When you suddenly you're going through an area and you're low on health and then suddenly there's something that you've never seen before and you are low on health and the boss is on the is and the boss is like two rooms away. That is a scary moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's rough. Alright. Adrian, could you tell us about Apsu? So Apsu, I feel like I might have talked out most of it. Uh, it's one of the more complicated areas in the game. Uh, very twisty and windy, has has a lot of paths. But not only that, unlike Ukana, something about Ukana that I just realized now is that that actually has a consistent theme throughout pretty much the entirety of the level. Whereas Absu, as you just see, I just put in three pictures of three completely different looking palettes that are all in the same area. Yeah, so when you say that Ukana has the same theme, you mean graphically? Yeah, graphically. Granted that there's the difference between um, when Trace is sick and when Trace is okay. Right. And even, I think even the mountains, they're still consistent. I mean, you go from mountains to more snowy mountains, and then like that little part when you're inside the mountain. But it's easier to set them apart because they're literally on top of each other. So, you know, that's not too confusing. Whereas in Apsu, it can actually switch uh, quite a bit from the purple area to the weird uh, red Fruit Loop area to the prison one. Even even in the palette of the Fruit Loop area, you can see parts of the prison one, which is how it can switch like that. And that also applies to Z as well, which is another reason why they're two of the more complicated areas. It's almost because there's like areas within areas with them, and they can almost switch at any moment. That's not even all of them, too. And for the sense of direction, unlike, you know, Ukana, which is a more upward chase, Absolutely, is more twisty and windy. You have a, a lot of those vertical corridors and horizontal ones and just big rooms that you sort of zigzag your way through. Right. Apsu tends to pretzel over itself, whereas Ukana has the very predictable go-up, build tension, and then when you're on your way out, you go down, it's a release of tension. Yeah. Same thing with um, uh, Kerr, to a lesser extent, where you have these giant... You, you can even see it on this overall map that we have these giant rectangles, and then over it, and then some section where it shoots off, but then it'll loop again back into that big major area. So even those areas are simpler to get a grasp of, whereas Absu and Z, to a lesser extent, it's, it's not as easy to do that with. Okay. I think you already mentioned that it is rewarding to backtrack through the area. Yeah, and I think it's probably the one area you can backtrack through the most, because... It does use the teleport, the teleporter, the drone in a lot of places. Any any address disruptor or disruptor bomb? Yeah, you get it there. Wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. The red fruit loop area. That's where you use the address disruptor. I, I know there's an area around there where you use it, level two, or maybe the bomb. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the even you know late key items you still you can use there, and that's what makes that one of the more areas you're going to come back to the most in order to find things. I think I actually said that earlier. Did you feel like the enemies influenced the map design at all? Hard to say. And I think I brought this up outside of the podcast, but um, I actually did not get that good of a feel for the enemies. I know the Zoomers, they make, it, they, he uses them exactly like in Metroid. In fact, I even call them by their Metroid name, the Zoomers, where in a lot of those vertical shafts, they sort of just climb around the platforms. Uh, the zombie dudes are super annoying. They're usually in those prison areas 
Uh, I'm not a fan of the ones that pop out of the ground because they do it like really fast and it's just a gotcha kind of moment. <laughs> Is that the area with the giant bugs that shoot the triple shots? They are in there. They're actually in a lot more areas than um, I expected them to be. I thought they would be only in that prison area, but they are in Eden. In in the transition area, be- I think no, no, no. I think it's Eden. Yeah, they're there. Transition between Eden and I can't remember these names for the life of me. Ukana. There we go. It's okay. There's so it's so many. easy for me to remember a name like North there, but Ukana. I just nope. Brain yeah. can't remember. Well, it's not a map in Smash Brothers yet. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, like you know, like nothing about the names of these monsters. Those weird zombie yeah. things oh, are called ghouls. Other, hang on. There is actually one enemy that I really liked, and it was the pollen spitters. That's the only thing. They remind me of the ones in Super Mario World. You know, they shoot out a spread of pollen. The lava and, lotuses. Yeah, the lava lotuses. That's a cool name. There are some neat moments where the level design does take advantage of by putting them on high platforms and having them, since their thing aims down, naturally put them up so they can fall down onto you, so it can rain down on you. Right, so that... That inspired some rooms that took the map vertically. Yeah, same thing with those anemone things that shoot out the weird sperm-looking things that go all over the place. The vertical shafts were also good for those rooms. And the tunnels with the little drill worms, that's another example of enemies influencing level design. Same thing with the side hoppers because, well, they hop to the side. The jellyfish in that one green section, I have a picture of it, but they're in those little valleys where it dips or they're placed obnoxiously below you so that they can hover or swim or whatever jellyfish do up into you. And they also shoot upwards. And they're also invincible from above. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, again, enemies influencing level design. So you can find a lot of that in this game. It's not hodgepodge, as I may have initially thought. Okay. Yeah, because um, I actually comment out a lot of these, so... I feel like it's more of those chaser enemies where they get stuck on their own ledges and even sometimes side hoppers where they get stuck on things that uh, feels a little bit goofy and sometimes just <laughs> the way they already are and the way the platforms are set up, it's like you're, you're literally blocking the way. I have to cheese you out because there's nothing else I can do here. And yeah, to me, that's one of the sillier aspects of some of the enemy designs. Alright. I wanted to discuss Kerr. So... Kerr is unique, as Adrian mentioned aesthetically, because it's all... Kerr is entirely about that mountain idea, and when you go into Kerr, you're in the caves below the mountain, and then you go up and you see the surface, and there's actually kind of a pretty vista with giant pollen in the background. And then you climb up even further, and there's snow and stuff, and it's maybe one of the most cohesive areas in terms of the location concept. It's unique because it's the first area where you need to travel into it and then backtrack out of it before you can make progress. You need to go into Kerr to grab the field disruptor, but then you need to go back to Z in order to fight a boss and get the lab coat. So it marks a turning point in the game where it's your first serious moment of backtracking where you have to go back to a different area. But it is also unique in that the first half of it, the cave half of it, has these uh, lots of these small interlocking passages, and it's more typical of the first half of the game. But the latter half, after you've come back with your lab coat, you get a couple of these really big open rooms, and the ceiling is way up in the sky, and it really feels like it's outside because... Of the amount of open space. The walls are so far apart from each other. And the graphics reflect that by literally being outside. And so it also makes sense that one useful item in that area is the grapple beam, because it helps you to cross those huge chasms. Yeah. And so that also influences its sense of direction, in that in the the first half, you're more strictly guided by those corridors, and in the second half, certainly there are platforms and paths that you follow, but they're not as explicitly dictated And once you get the grapple beam, you might have to play around with what your range is, where you can jump to, stuff like that. The first area that you mentioned earlier, it's actually a single vertical shaft with 
four doors to the right and then two doors to the left that lead to Eden and the fast travel room. So it's still a simple area. The first part of Kerr, which is inside the mountain, is actually still a simple area. It's simple because of its size, but you can only fit so much complexity into something that's just one vertical corridor. And I think given that it is one vertical corridor, having six offshoots from it is still significant. Yeah. Oh, another thing, the enemy design in the cave portion of Kerr, inside the mountain portion of Kerr, is where you have those neat little zoomers that have a sentry laser effect. And the seahorses that come out of these toxic pools and shoot poison bubbles at you. So those are some cool enemies. And that's also where it's affected by level design because he has to put in those ponds for them to jump out of. And uh, I suppose it does influence the sense of direction in that the seahorses are most effective in the long horizontal rooms. And they are in a couple of the vertical rooms. But those rooms are really yeah. cramped, and they don't have much range on their shots. Yeah. The most dangerous part is probably that little explosion residue they leave behind, which lingers for a bit. Yeah. And then in the latter half, the wheelie enemies take large advantage of the open level design because they are free to roll off of ledges. And so with an open level design, you're going to have a lot of edges to roll off of and then ambush trace. Yeah, it's also one of the few environmental hazards with the boulders. You also have the enemies that drop down and bite at you. Yes, lots of stuff that takes advantage of just being big and open. So Nick, well, I was going to ask, think of a time you were lost, and I was going to ask how you found the way forward. I didn't. Right, so where did you get stuck? What exactly happened is the area with all those weird hummingbirds and those that one spinning vine that had, like, a bunch of berries or something hanging from it and had, like, a little pinwheel on top. Right. That is Eden. Yeah, it is Eden. And I was... Honestly, I like that enemy a lot. It's a good example of a well-thought-out corruption address disruptor. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. But when I played through there, I could not find my way through Eden. I kept Mm. going in different ways, and I was like, is this it? No? And I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out how to get through. And then I played it for a lot longer, trying to find my way through, until I kind of just got burned out and bored, and then another game came out that I wanted to play. I don't remember what it was, but probably spent over 100 hours on it now. I'm kind of of surprised that you're saying that, because it was like one of the more clearly signposted ways of where you need to go, because it's literally blocked by a thing you need the address bomb for. So it's like... Like, is the address bomb the same thing as address disruptor, except it's a bomb? Because I never found that. Right. I think the the thing he's getting stuck before is the address bomb. I don't know where the address bomb is, then. Right, exactly. That's the next thing you need to go to. Was that one of those things that that you had to backtrack to find? No, actually. It it was actually, like, on the main path. You, You get the address disruptor, like, literally right before you go on your way to Eden. It's in Eden. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's, it's in Eden. I, I don't even know if it's my, my save on, is on this computer still works. I'm going to try playing on Steam, but I have, like, very few loads on it because I played it off Steam version. Ah. Okay. So when you got stuck, what did you do to try to get unstuck? I did decide to follow the floor around and try to find any way that was around it. Like, climb up here or go underneath there. I even left the area and went through Eden on the back end of it and tried to go through it there. Of course, it didn't work, but... Okay. Adrian, what is the time that you got stuck? I actually did not get stuck. (laughs) Well, then, that makes one of us. Oh. (laughs) I did get stuck, and... I actually got stuck a couple of times, and what I ended up having to do was look at the map, find a room where there was an edge that I hadn't found the wall on, and just get every single room like that, make sure I don't have something that works, and then move on. And every single time, that worked for getting me the path forward.
So, Adrian, do you consider yourself a fan of the Metroidvania genre? In as much as I play, which is mostly the mainline Metroid games, and now this game, which is very clearly heavily inspired by it, I would say, yeah. Alright. If you had to convince someone to play a game of this genre, how would you sell them on it? Oh. I actually would not know. Oh, like, pick the the best and most important, funnest aspect. If you like run-gun gameplay, and like having an interconnected world to explore and fight your way through, so something to both challenge your reflex skills and also challenging your knowledge skills, mainly your memory hold, then this would be the kind of game for you. Truly an action-adventure. You sold me on the game. Truly an (laughs) action-adventure. Nick, this is your first... Metroidvania, right? Yeah. Are you inspired to look up any more? Actually, I am. I actually am going to go look into playing more of them. This was a pretty good game to me. I can't wait to play the next next Metroid game. You know, that one where you have to shoot a soccer ball in the goals. (laughs) Oh boy, I'm glad you're on board. (laughs) See, I don't know how to react to that because I'm sure it's a good game, but... Also, you're mocking it. I'm mocking it because it's not in a style or in the theme of Metroid. It's like there if there was okay. a... You know, I can understand and respect the, the amount of work that is put into it, and it might be a really good game, but my problem is that it's not a fitting game. It's like if there's an Alien vs. Predator game that came out, and it, it was um, like Animal Crossing. It doesn't matter well, if it's... It doesn't matter if it's good. It's still not fitting the tone. Yeah, but Super Mario Kart isn't... I mean, you know, what, you, isn't what you're talking about, like, you think chibi art, you, you think a bunch of, like, chibi space marine dudes, like, doing space soccer, like, where's the tone problem there? I don't know, it just doesn't feel <laughs> like a Metroid game. Like, it doesn't feel Is like... that sarcasm? <laughs> <laughs> it's just too dry. I couldn't tell. Actually, got real, like, Metroidvania games by this, though. And I'm... I just though I want to avoid ones that kind of lose their identity like that. Sure. So you wouldn't start with other M. You would go to Super Metroid. Look, I've I've known I know enough like, about other M to know that I'm not gonna watch it. Not gonna play it or watch it even. Okay. Really? I totally want to play that game. I've heard that the gameplay is all right, but I've heard that the story is. Well, the word I heard the most oh. is that she says the baby, the baby. Right. Yeah. I actually watched the Retro Prey video of it, and I thought, wow, this is pretty entertainingly bad. So, Adrian, any final words? Uh, final words? Uh, yes. Axiom Verge is pretty cool. I, right, I wish I could some... give a better review, but um, I talked about it so much in the podcast, I think I made it clear what I like and don't like. All right. And Nick, any final words? I actually do think that it's a great game. I'd recommend it to anybody who's trying to get into Metroidvania but has doesn't know where to start because it's fresh and you don't have to worry about, okay, did I miss anything from a previous game? Yeah. Okay. I also like that it's art style and it's good. It's a good game. Nice. Alright, well, I'll see you around. All music in this podcast came from Axiom Verge. I'll leave you with this final thought. When level design expands in multiple directions, it adds complexity to the game. That means it's not as simple to find something when you backtrack, and it's not as simple to find the right way forward. But what about the experience itself? If you had a GPS, as it were, what would be the value of the map design in Axiom Verge? If you have any comments or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com. Guests of the Commune podcast stay at the lovely Eden Hotel, where they can enjoy glitched-out vistas and the scenic biomechanical husk. Don't forget your mosquito net!
You know what? It's another way. I hear here's another reason why is that it's motherfucker. You outbid me at the last second. Fuck you. Oh man. All right. So I was about I, to ask. I, if you had I to just go. lost Ninja Blade. No, I just lost Ninja Blade. Um, but the thing is, like that bet so much money that it actually went past the point I would normally pay for. Because the thing is, GameStop's actually selling that for like four ninety nine. And this thing right now just went up to $8. So it's like, no, hell with that. I don't care if the manual's in there at all. I'm not paying that much for that. Yeah, just go with so, the GameStop. Yeah, they might still have the manual in there. I know it's used, but who knows? Maybe they're dickbags and they actually take them out. I would hate it if they did that. Anyways, what were we talking about? Super Infusion. Oh, yeah. It's like Zelda. Or, I mean, sorry. 